Thanks for leading us in prayer, Walter. And uh, it's good to be reminded uh, that uh, God calls us to give, not begrudgingly, but with joy and delight and with cheer. Um, new song, Stephen. Thanks uh, for that new song this morning. There's a line in there that's a little troublesome, though. We watch the Giants fall. Not going to work too well during baseball season. So that's a non-baseball singing worship song. Go Niners. Why not? Rod, you're in a, a, a messy minority here as a Dodgers fan. We'll pray for you later. Uh, welcome again, especially those of you who aren't in the sanctuary, who are at home. Uh, we're glad that you're with us, glad that we're still able to be uh, together in this way. The last couple of weeks, we've probably seen a little shift uh, toward folks staying at home because of the COVID surge, and that's understandable. We want to reaffirm that people ought to do what's best and right for them and for their household and for their conscience. So we're glad you're with us. However, you're able to be glad to be here in the sanctuary for worship together, but also uh, glad to be home for those of you who are at home. So uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from chapter one of the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church. I've selected Acts uh, chapter one this morning for a couple of reasons. First, many of us are reading through the New Testament together this year, and the reading yesterday for that group of people in our program was Acts chapter one. So this will be a little bit deeper dive for some of you and for some of you who already have this passage in your mind, on your heart. The second reason is this, Acts tells the beginning, it tells the story of the beginning of the early church, what I'm going to call this morning the nascent church. And I say nascent rather than infant church or baby church or even new church because those terms convey or imply weakness or helplessness, or powerlessness, which is anything but what the nascent church exhibited. Rather, the nascent church, or the earliest church, exhibited strength and power and hope. And so the word nascent conveys new and young, but also emerging and budding and blossoming and burgeoning and hopeful and even growing. And those words described the first century church in its first days, in its first weeks, in its first months, even its first years, nascent. And as I've been sort of sitting in who we are and how we are and where we are as a congregation these days, I would not be surprised if we as a congregation are on the verge of a new birth of some sort, honestly. COVID has been hard. The last two years have been hard in a number of ways. As things have shut down, as people have gotten sick, as we've had to sort of offline some ministries for a period of time. Some churches have had to lay off people. Many people in our society lost their jobs early on, jobs that they really needed. Sometimes staffs have had to be laid off. Ministry opportunities dried up. Lots of people who have been connected to churches drifted away and remain drifted away. Losing touch with their community, losing touch with their faith, in many cases losing touch with the Lord, though the Lord has not lost touch with them. And so it's been a hard time 
in churches and in some ways in this church, many churches in our country and around the world probably have closed their doors for good over the last two years. But God has not abandoned his people. And the gospel of God's grace is needed as much now or more than ever before. And God's kingdom is still advancing in our world and in our community. And it may be that God is ushering, that God is drawing us, that God is inviting us into a new season relating to each other, a new way of serving others, a new way of bearing witness in the world, a good bit of which we see in Acts chapter 1, as we'll see in a moment. But first, let's pray together. Join me again in prayer. God, truly open us to you and to yourself and to your word. Help us to clear the deck so that we might hear you clearly and respond faithfully. Give us the sort of vision that you have for San Mateo and for our county and for Northern California and for all the earth. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray, deviate, or inconsistent, or do not accurately reflect your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like the gospel of Luke, the book of Acts was also written by a man named Luke. This Luke was a Gentile. He was a follower of Jesus. He was early on a rare Gentile follower of Jesus. He also happened to be a physician. He may have time. He, it seems at times that he traveled with the apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And so may have been Paul's personal physician in some ways on those travels. The book or the gospel of Luke is his volume one. The book of Acts is his volume two. So listen closely as we read now from the book of Acts, chapter one, verse one. This is the word of God. In my former book, Theophilus, which is a word that means literally friend of God, which was probably referring not generally to all friends of God, but to a specific person Luke knew. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that probably reminds you of the opening words of the Gospel of Mark, doesn't it? That read, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You remember that. What Mark was about to write in his gospel, just like what Luke, Luke, what Luke wrote in his gospel in his first volume, was only the beginning of what Jesus would do and teach. Even after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, post-resurrection ministry, and ascension, Jesus would continue to do and teach because Jesus lives, he continues to do and teach. Yes, he is not buried, but instead he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he continues to minister, even today. So in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
after his suffering, a reference to his cross, which is always central to who Jesus was and what Jesus was about and continues to be. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about, what do you think? What do you think he spoke about? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Of course Jesus would continue to speak about what he spoke about most often over the course of his three years of public ministry, the kingdom of God. And tell me, not a rhetorical question, what is the kingdom of God? How would you define it? How would you describe it? It's here and now. How else would we define or describe the kingdom of God? The authority of God. Anywhere where Jesus reigns. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, it is the rule of God, it is the reality of where and how God reigns. It is the range of God's effective will, it is here, it is present, it is coming, it is advancing, it is around us, it is in us, it is in the midst of us, it is among us. It is present, it is future. The range of God's effective will. This is the kingdom of God. And continuing, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with or in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. The gift that Jesus would give, the gift was the Holy Spirit or the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath, the Holy Wind, Numa. This was the gift. The gift of the disciples that Jesus would give to his disciples and followers. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you, at, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And it's worth noting first that Jesus is now always Lord, kurios in the Greek, which means master, the one who has power, the one who has authority, the one who dictates how things will be, Lord. But the Lord Jesus sort of ignores the disciples' question, at least as it pertained to the kingdom of Israel. His focus was more on a bigger and broader and greater kingdom, what he called the kingdom or the reign of God. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but more importantly, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you may remember the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee's good and helpful definition of spirit as God's empowering presence. Let's say those words together. God's empowering presence. But you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And what was the Holy Spirit about? What was the Holy Spirit for? Why the gift of the Holy Spirit? What was the Holy Spirit's mission? To empower them to be witnesses right where they were at and in the surrounding community and then among very different peoples in the next community and to the ends of the earth in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses tell people what they have seen. Witnesses tell people what they have heard. Witnesses testify to what they have seen and heard. They share their testimony. They give their testimony. They bear witness to what they have experienced and what they have known. And Jesus promised that God would give to people power, dynamite, through God's Spirit to do exactly this, and that included shy people, and that included introverted people, and that included young people like Jesus' disciples, and that included people without formal education like Jesus' disciples. That included you, and that includes me. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, their back, (laughs) stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Why are you standing here looking into the sky? What else would we be doing? (laughs) Right? Jesus, did you not see that? Just sort of drifted, lifted. I don't know how that happens uh, when they make movies invisible suspension cords, and there goes Jesus up into the clouds. Where else would we be looking? What else would we be doing, especially since you just said he's coming back to us in the way that he just left? Our eyes are going to stay on the clouds. We're going to continue to look up, shouldn't we? Then the apostles the, the two guys dressed in white disappear. The apostles return to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk. It's about a half a mile down a valley and back up into Jerusalem, the walled city proper. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, the Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. They hadn't believed in the past, but now that they've seen everything, they believe. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 at that point, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. There must have been grief in those words. Verse 18, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. 
For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who had been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us the whole time. For one of them men, one of these men, must become a witness with us of his resurrection that he is alive. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 disciples, end of chapter. And this last little bit was not a beauty contest. It was not a beauty contest. At first, I imagine that this must have been a really awkward situation. The disciples needed to fill a slot. Twelve is a great number. Jesus selected 12 men to be his disciples. The number 12, certainly for the Jewish mind, must have brought to mind the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, all of those people who had sort of been the key figures in dividing up and leading the people of Israel for centuries. So they needed or they wanted 12 disciples. Judas was no longer a part of them. Judas Iscariot, they needed a replacement. Two men were nominated and a vote was taken. The 11 cast lots. We don't know if it was a secret ballot or if they just raised their hands to vote. Either way, I'm sort of glad that today we don't vote on elders and deacons in this way in which two or more people are nominated for an open slot and it's just sort of a duel. Who gets the most votes? There's a vote for Michael, there's a vote for Dennis, there's another vote for Dennis, a vote for Michael, a vote for Dennis. Dennis is ahead. Yes, how awkward or interesting that would be. But what makes this election in Acts 1 interesting is that it wasn't a beauty contest, it wasn't a popularity contest. There was no prize for the one who would get elected. Rather, the 11 disciples cast lots to see which of these two men would join them in likely death. In likely death. Remember that the Greek word translated into English as witness is the Greek word martus, from which we get the English word martyr, which is exactly what, is, what happened, it is thought, to 11 of the 12 disciples the exception likely being John. Following Jesus in the early church was not done on a catwalk like beauty pageants, but rather in the trenches under fire at risk in the midst of danger. You remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And the winner is Matthias. Congratulations, Matthias. Welcome to the team, brother. 
Sort of. And yet from this embryonic community of men and women who had been with Jesus for three years and who in the power of God's spirit and at great risk to their own physical lives would testify to what they had heard and seen and experienced, God would change the world, including rescuing any and all who would take hold of the salvation that God offered and offers in and through Jesus. And so this nascent community in Christ and of Christ the Lord, one, paid attention to the teaching of Jesus and specifically what he said about this great kingdom. Two, they received and welcomed God's empowering presence the Holy Spirit. Three, they received, they prayed constantly. We read in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. And then fourth, they bore witness to what they had seen, heard, and experienced in and of and about the Lord Jesus. This was how things started. These are our spiritual ancestors. And while there's definitely more to the nascent church in chapter 2 of Acts about how the earliest church spent time together, ate together, shared the Lord's Supper together, shared all that they possessed, had, owned together with one another as there was need, we will save that for another day. For now and today, let's give our attention and take with us when we leave these four traits of the very earliest church. First, they paid attention to the teaching of Jesus, especially with regard to what he said about the kingdom of God or the reign of God, the realm of God, the authority of God in their midst. And far too few people even know what the kingdom of God is, much less have paid attention to what Jesus says about the kingdom in our midst and the kingdom that is coming. Far too people in the church, too few people, spend enough time in God's word to be able to identify what is and what isn't. Far too many people simply come to church, go to church, have their names on the membership role of a church, and think that that is what God intends for us and for humanity. It is not. Rather, he intends for us to seek first his kingdom, to live in his kingdom, to live by his kingdom, to understand his reign and his rule over every aspect of each of our lives. And that takes some learning. That takes some study. That takes some paying attention. That takes being in God's word. And so if you want to join some of us on this little journey through the New Testament this year, you're still invited and welcome to jump in. It's not too late. Or find some other way in your life if you have not already to pay attention, to learn about, to engage, to embrace God's kingdom among us. First, they paid attention to the teaching of Jesus especially with regard to what he said about the kingdom of God. We admire Jesus 
people treat Jesus as Savior and sometimes as Lord, but not as often as teacher. Second, they received and welcomed the Holy Spirit into their lives, their community, their very selves with the Holy Spirit uniting their spirits, uniting with their spirits at least once visibly and more than once audibly and certainly often less tangibly but no less real. And different people are going to have different understandings about what exactly that means and how exactly that happens and what exactly that looks like. Different people are going to have different understandings, perspectives, and thoughts about what that means, how that looks, and how it manifests itself. And I'm not going to attempt to define that once and for all for everybody here this morning, but only encourage us to embrace and to welcome and to be open to God's empowering presence in our lives and to do so humbly, prayerfully, and intentionally. Third, the nascent church prayed, and Luke says they prayed constantly, and this can look a lot of different ways. This can take many different forms. I'm under no illusion that Jesus' followers spent the rest of their lives with their heads bowed, their eyes closed, and their hands clasped together. They did not, reciting prayer after prayer after prayer. They did not, but clearly prayer was a regular and continual and very natural part of their lives. And most of us have room for growth in this area, and that will look different for different people. And some of us already spend intentional time in prayer each morning or each evening before bed or both. Some of us gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the sanctuary to pray with others. Some of us have a prayer chair. Some people write their prayers in a journal. I encourage us all to pray constantly, which again is going to look very different for different ones of us. Some of us will choose to pray together. Some of us will choose to pray solo on a prayer chair in a prayer closet. Some of us will benefit by going out and buying a book of daily prayers, a prayer for every day of the year. I recommend John Bailey's A Diary of Private Prayer had lasting influence among Christians for a long time. For some, it may mean beginning a practice of regular prayer with others. For some, it may mean fashioning out a time of prayer two or three times a day to just say the Lord's Prayer in one's own words. Father, you are glorified. Bring about your kingdom in my life, in my world. Thank you for providing for me daily. I have enough. Forgive me. Lord, have mercy. I'm sorry. Help me to forgive others. Protect me from evil. Protect me. Save me. Rescue me from temptation. Have your way. For some of us, it may be as simple as saying some of the most simple prayers of the scriptures regularly throughout the day. Lord, have mercy. Thy will be done, not mine. Come, Lord Jesus. It can look a lot of different ways, and it will. But it's important that we be a praying people as a community and as individuals. And then fourth, the nascent church bore witness to what they had seen, heard, and experienced of the grace of God in Jesus. I remember Tony Campolo saying a long time ago that he was out on the streets preaching the gospel 
the night after he was saved or came to faith in Jesus or re received Jesus. And someone asked him in this public setting, well, what world could you possibly have preached on Saturday night after having just become a Christian? And his response was, I preached on Saturday night about what had happened on Friday night. And that was enough. I told my story. I shared what I'd seen and had come to know. And even that was enough. God can work, God can work through even that. Through who we are, through who we are what, we know, what we know, for what we have seen, and how we are, and, how we are, and, who, and who we've become. And through all of this, through God, all of this God intends to bring about his kingdom. God's intention, God's has, intention been has been God's intention has always been redemption. And God has been and remains at work reconciling people to himself in and through Jesus. I ran across these words of Dallas Willard this week, which uh, kind of hit the point for me. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Isn't that just right? And not only do we get to be a part of that, but God has included us in the, in the means through which he intends to bring that about. And I think we may be on the cusp of a new step in that direction as a congregation, despite the decline of mainline churches, despite the decline of mainline Christianity, despite COVID, despite whatever and however and everything. My time is up. My sense and my hope and my prayer is that what God did through the earliest church, he wants to and intends to do again today, even among us, even in our feebleness, even in our place, even among us. And for us, this may take some reimagining, some reimagining work and even retooling. Martin Luther and John Calvin and their buddies back in the 1500s call this being reformed according to the word of God. Being reformed according to the word of God. Let's say those words together. Being reformed according to the word of God. Which for many of us and us as a congregation may mean some reimagining and again, some retooling. Which may be hard or difficult or bumpy, but can be very good. And so notice that in chapter 1 of Acts, there was no building. The church was not a building. There was no organ or drums. There were no staff, no programs, no stained glass windows. There was no youth ministry. There were no retreats. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we need to be careful not to get caught up in and about and with those things. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. 
through seeking first God's kingdom, through the empowerment of God's spirit, through constant prayer, and through bearing witness to what we know and have seen and learned and experienced of and about the Lord Jesus, God will bring this about. This past week, I returned the phone call of someone who was with us in the sanctuary last week, Sunday, and who said to me very kindly, I must say, you've got a rock and roll band. I don't know. I don't know if they're a rock and roll band. Which meant that this church was not right for that person. And that's fine. We're not right for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But let's not let the church be about a rock and roll band or an organ or the color of the paint or the type of carpet or any of those other secondary, tertiary, beyond tertiary things. Instead, let us seek first the kingdom of God, pray continually, seek to be filled with God's spirit, and bear witness to all of the good stuff we have seen, known, learned, and enjoyed in and through Jesus. Let's pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, God. Forgive our stuff. Forgive when we don't want to move when you're calling us to follow. Forgive us when we want to see things our way instead of your way. Forgive us when we're slow to share, tell, give, announce, bless, serve, love unconditionally. Heal us, help us, sanctify us. Thank you for redeeming our lives from the pits and blessing us with the grace of your abundance. Bring about your kingdom in and among and through First Presbyterian Church. Name be praised. May your name be lifted high. Amen.